you have a hundred billion dollars. You can't get around the fact that people are going to write about you. And so your wins are going to be um, amplified, but so are your losses. It's the old adage that you're never as bad as they say, and you're never as good as they say. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's the sound of DoorDash opening the New York Stock Exchange for the very first time following its initial public offering in early December. It's also the sound of I told you so from one of its biggest investors, SoftBank's Vision Fund, with $100 billion to invest on Silicon Valley startups. $100 billion? Well, that was something in equity they- to buy things? Man, that's a lot. It made bets on a spectrum of startups, from AI to ride-sharing apps. Two of the Vision Fund's biggest investments, Uber and WeWork, causing investors to wonder if Masa's Vision Fund is starting to show some cracks. When you're disrupting an industry, you have fans and you have detractors. SoftBank's Jeff Hausenbold. We've been able to back very large companies like Slack, like Garden Health, like DoorDash, like Uber, like Didi, um, like Open Door. And by bringing not just capital, because while we do have a lot of capital, um, capital is fairly accessible in today's market with very low interest rates around the world that's seeking yield. Hausenbold is managing partner at SoftBank Investment Advisors, which runs the Vision Fund. Now, if you're not familiar, it's worth knowing about. You did not mishear me at the top of the podcast. A $100 billion investment fund. Other venture capitalists call the Vision Fund the 800-pound gorilla. And it's led by a man named Masayoshi-san. The way I explain it on TV is almost like the Monopoly man with bags of money uh, who comes into Silicon Valley and just startles everyone. Is that a fair a fair assessment? It is, and you have to go back to who Masa is and his remarkable personal story. So here's a man who is kind of outcast in Japan because he was half Korean and half Japanese. So he didn't fit in anywhere, yet ambitious um, and visionary and um, talks to some people about what their success looked like and how they got there. And the advice he was given was, go get educated in the United States. So he does, he goes to Berkeley. And while at Berkeley, he keeps a journal and he forces himself to uh, come up with dozens of ideas for businesses on a weekly basis. And he ends up starting a business. And it was a, back then we had things called calculators and he created a software program for a calculator and ended up selling it, making a couple hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
And that launched him into being an entrepreneur. And he then started a company called Software Bank, which then got shortened to SoftBank. And then the internet exploded. And he saw the power of what the internet could do for businesses, the ability to reach broader audiences, to have a more efficient distribution channel, to be able to um, change your interfaces more frequently. And he became a prolific investor in the uh, mid-90s during the first um, uh, wave of internet companies and incredibly successful. And at one point in time, in 2001, he was the richest person uh, in the world, uh, about $70 billion. And the bubble burst. And because Massa was like, I don't understand, this is just temporary, the internet is here to stay, he didn't sell. And he rode the internet bubble down to he was worth, I think, less than a billion dollars. And so he said, we need to invest because my biggest mistake was I didn't have enough money when all these prices came down and he passed on investing in a little book reseller called um, Amazon and he today still regrets that. And so he wanted to have enough quantum of capital to be able to have meaningful stakes in the next generation of great technology companies. And so um, he went out to start a $100 billion fund. And so um, I'm just um, blessed to be part of that journey and uh, 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 we're having a tremendous amount of success uh, partnering with uh, the next generation of technology companies. For those people who are listening to the podcast, perhaps in their car and they've got to concentrate on the kids and the traffic and everything else, say that number about the amount in the fund again. $100 billion in the first fund. There's that $100 billion figure again. SoftBank used that money to make some good investments. It used that money to make some more questionable investments, though, of course, I have the benefit of hindsight. Investments like WAG, a dog walking service. SoftBank, with $100 billion to spend, put a lot of money into WAG. I was writing my notes down about how much SoftBank had invested in WAG, wrote it down as $300 million. actually went back to double-check that because I thought, now, hold on, that can't be right. $300 million. Yeah, we invested um, a little less than $300 million. And um, the concept, if you think about dog ownership and pet ownership, both in the United States um, and throughout the world, Japan is the second um, uh, oh, it's a huge market, a, absolutely huge market. But my, I guess my question, and maybe you were going there, is you know they don't they don't need to have a fleet of trucks, and they don't need to to research uh, self driving cars, and they, they what would they do with three hundred million dollars? Yeah, very similar to Uber. If you think about it, it, was the Uber for dog walking, and so you want to open uh, lots of geographies. And you want to quickly increase what we call density or capacity utilization because your unit economic could get much better. If an individual dog walker knows that he or she has eight or 10 walks uh, in the day, her calendar is filled. And so she's a committed dog walker. And um, that just makes the flywheel um, uh, go much faster. And so it was about rapid acceleration, both geographically and not just in dog walking, but also other dog services. And ultimately, the vision was not to be a dog walking company, but to be um, uh, the way I thought about it was at Shutterfly, I built an aspirational, emotional company around people's memories and connections. Most people would have said it's a photo finishing company. And we had a much broader vision, and that's why I think ultimately we won in that industry. 
And the same pattern recognition for WAG was, yes, you're a dog walking company today, and there are a lot of mom and pops, in fact, 54,000 of them in the United States. And there were other competitors like Rover, which was backed by Menlo and Benchmark and others, and there were many others. And so the idea was, how do you go from being a dog walking company, which is the first kind of way you acquire customers, to being an aspirational, emotional destination for people who see their furry friends as part of the family. So once you acquire them for dog walking, which by the way, has an annuity stream because your pet has to pee and poo a couple of times a day. And so every day you're collecting uh, economic rents, just like DoorDash, people eat three or four times a day. It's not like an iPhone, you buy a new one every two or three years, there's high frequency to it. So if you acquire them through that, then you could start to sell them personalized dog food and dog um, toys and training devices, and you can um, expand your share of wallet. And so the ambition and the vision was right. The execution was not as um, uh, uh, well executed as one would hope, but those are the kind of bets you get to take when you have $100 billion. And if you put it into equivalent, let's say many other growth funds are a billion dollar growth funds, that's like betting $3 million in a traditional $1 billion. Yeah, uh, yeah I have the same feeling. I, you know, I, I feel like if you have a lot of money, it's easier to put a lot of money in. But there's this push for the lean startup. Don't you think that there are some soft bank funded companies in which they, they didn't know what to do with that amount of money? They were getting so much compared to what they would have got from the rest of the firms on Sand Hill Road. Yeah, so the answer to that is some will be successful and some won't. And that has some influence by the amount of capital you raise, but that often is not the real factor of uh, success. Success is, do I have the right vision? Do I have the right um, strategy? Do I hire the right people? Do I have the right KPIs? Do I build the right culture of success? Do I execute Am I um, timing customer or consumer adoption right? Um, what is the technology curve? What are my competitors doing? What's the macroeconomic industry? There's, uh, uh, so there's so many factors that go into the success of a company. And so a lot of people want to write about, oh, they failed because they had too much money. Having been able to sit at the perch I have and seen 120 of our portfolio companies, the quantum of capital they raised um, is not... Uh, uh, does not have a high R squared to did they succeed or did they fail. What it does allow you is to get escape velocity. It allows you to attract the best and brightest. Think about Google did this quite um, amazingly. They basically cornered the market for PhDs, for, for great engineers, because they were able to pay 30% more than we were paying for engineers at eBay, for example. And so if you have more quantum of dollars you've raised, you're gonna attract more people. If you are able to acquire more customers and you get the flywheel and the viral word of uh, mouth and network effects going, if you could build a competitive and comparative moat through that capital and you execute and you have luck and timing, then you could be successful. And so um, a lot has been written about the quantums of money, but take Opendoor, for example. They're now the leader in iBuyers. And they're, you know, went public via SPAC with Chamath Palapatea, and um, they're off to the races. Take Compass um, that we invested in, right? When we invested, they were sub $10 billion in, in um, GMV, and now they're the third largest broker 
in all of America and will likely be at their current growth pass, uh, uh, pace uh, number one in the next two years. And uh, that would have been uh, unthinkable uh, had we not put a couple hundred million dollars in. So there are so many examples where the quantum of capital has allowed companies to accelerate and win in their respective industries. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're going to talk about SPACs with uh, the CEO of ChargePoint in the next week or two on this podcast. And so I'll invite the listener to learn more about what a SPAC is in that episode. But let us let me ask you, though, that has become an interesting way for companies to, to go public. It has. And, you know, SPACs have been around for decades and they, have been, they were um, uh, infrequently used and often used for companies that um, – could not attract capital through the traditional routes. And in the last 18 months, we've had an explosion of number of SPACs. The last count I saw was 174 US-based funded SPACs looking for merger candidates. And so you ask yourself, why and why now? And I think with the, um, think about how Slack and uh, others have gone public through direct listings. And you think about the oligopoly of a handful of banks that basically control the traditional S1-based IPO. And if you think about in the Wilshire 5000, I think there's only 3,100 public companies left because it's been difficult to get out uh, public. Um, it's um, the cost and the overhead of regulatory the short-sightedness um, uh, of public investors and um, uh, lots of fast money moving around instead of long-term patient capital. And so entrepreneurs have chosen to stay private longer. In fact, the average company going public um, is 13.2 years uh, old now. And so um, people were looking for an alternative and direct listings was one, but the challenge with direct listings is you can't raise primary capital. So the money goes to existing investors instead of coming in to the company that can be used for investment in R&D, hiring new people, uh, marketing and, and uh, market expansion. And so the SPACs are an interesting hybrid 
where you're able to um, have certainty around the capital you're raising through the pipe. Um, you have the ability to talk about the future and what your plans are so prospectively, where in a traditional IPO, the regulations require you only to speak retrospectively about the past. And um, the cost burden of going out that way um, is cheaper and you could do it faster. And so I think what the market is saying is we're looking for a different way to have more companies go public so the masses will have access to invest in them instead of just the players on Sand Hill Road. And the SPACs are an interesting vehicle to allow that to happen. At the end of the day, Scott, you're still a public company. So that means you have to close the books timely and accurately. You have to have the ability to forecast your revenue. You have to adhere to uh, SEC rules and standard um, uh, uh, gap accounting. And so it's not a shortcut um, in, in many ways, but it is certainly a very interesting alternative to the traditional IPO process. As far as traditional IPOs go, uh, your fund is the single, single largest shareholder in DoorDash. And I realize as we get close to that, there's not a whole lot that you can speak to about that because of the restrictions on that. But there are a lot of investments that SoftBank uh, Vision Fund makes in you know, mobility and moving one thing to another. Uh, you know, people in Uber or food with DoorDash. Uh, those don't always make money and and they can scale pretty well, but I don't know that they've been proven to be terribly profitable. Yeah, so not speaking directly uh, about DoorDash because they are in registration right. and currently on the roadshow, I just point people at their S1 that's filed with the SEC and you can see the level of profitability in that business. But I think people are having a short, um, when people question the, the, the capability to be profitable in these businesses, that's a short-minded um, kind of uh, um, uh, uh, vision. You have to look over a long period of time and where can they um, uh, increase profitability? What are the levers to profitability? And in the case of Uber, they're profitable in their core markets. They're profitable in their ride hailing and their food delivery business. They choose to make additional investments to grow the size of the firm, just like a Salesforce or an enterprise software company. They have the ability to be profitable by, by turning off sales and marketing and milking the cash flow from their existing customers where they have high retention rates, but they're investing in new feature functionalities. They're investing in expanding uh, their platforms. And so we believe um, strongly, and, and a large part of the Vision Fund One was on, um, as you said, mobility. So we're the largest investor in Didi and Grab in Ola and 99 in DoorDash and Uber. We're also very large investors in GoPuff and Full Truck Alliance and other um, uh, Flexport and other companies that are using technology to change the way goods are um, moved and people are moved around the world. And if you think about technology, and I think it was Mark Andreessen who said, software is eating the world. Mm -hmm. Well, um, one of my investment um, filters is where uh, and what are the things in human existence that you can't replace with software? Well, food. You still have to eat three or four times. And in case of, uh, uh, you know, me sitting in front of Zoom all day, it might be six or seven, to be honest. Um, and so you can't replace food um, with software. You can't replace if I want to get from point A to point B. So, yeah, maybe I could put on a virtual reality glasses and see what it looks like in Bora Bora, but I still want that human experience of traveling and, and going there. And so the movement of people, um, uh, the, the eating of food, the 
community of humans, right? There are gonna be things that software won't um, be able to eat. And we see that uh, mobility is one of the important pieces of the next generation of infrastructure that can be an enhanced um, uh, uh, through technology. And so our investments across the world in that space are doing quite well. When we think about SoftBank, uh, and let me frame this with venture capital traditionally, you know, it'll have 10 investments and it'll have nine that lose out. And then the 10th will be something spectacular like Slack, which you invested in, or 10X Genomics, which you invested in. But but SoftBank has had some stinkers and WeWork is, is the one that jumps out. I don't want to get into WeWork and its, and its you know, problems. I want more to ask that reputation that the Vision Fund has, is the Vision Fund's reputation still, still solid in your mind? I think it is um, very solid and increasing in its positivity as people start to see that the investments we made are having um, very good returns for our limited partners. And you have to keep in mind a couple of things, and, and, and you said some of these, Scott. One is venture capital is a portfolio game. You're gonna have winners and you're gonna have losers. The second is it's a long game. So the Vision Fund is only three and a half, uh, four years old. And the typical hold period for uh, Silicon Valley venture capitalists is um, close to eight years, according to the National Venture Capital Association. So we're only halfway there. Yet in the last year alone, I think we've had nine or 10 very successful IPOs. Um, we made some missteps on WeWork, but many venture capitalists have um, uh, very big uh, flame outs in their portfolio. But they don't have $100 billion, so every reporter isn't standing outside of their office waiting to write the next story. And what we um, have said to our LPs, and we're blessed to have people um, who are very long-term patient LPs because the nature of who they are, they're the Apples and the Qualcomms and, and um, sovereign wealth funds, um, they understand where we are in that life cycle of the first fund. We're four years into a 14-year fund, and yet we're having some amazing success. And you know, SoftBank did earnings uh, a couple of weeks ago, and our portfolio has been uh, marked up quite handsomely, and we have a number of uh, more successful companies coming out. So I, um, I don't hide away from the failures. WAG was a failure. WeWork, um, uh, you know, they're doing a very nice job, the new management team, in turning it around, but um, there's still proof uh, points that have to be put up on the board. But so I don't hide from those failures because, as you said, it's a portfolio game. And the key thing is not if you make mistakes. The key thing is what is the pattern recognition and the insights that you can take away from um, those mistakes and how do you become better as an organization and better as an individual investor uh, from uh, those losses. And if you apply that and if you have enough of those handful of wins that typically will return the entire fund in there uh, uh, and, and more so, then you're able to continue to attract capital and be successful over a long period of time. Let me follow up on what you said there. What would be one of your takeaways from any one of the failures? And of course, failure is, is celebrated in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I'll give you a couple. So one is um, Masa and the organization, and I think most venture capitalists are very attracted to entrepreneurs who have grand visions, right? We all want big markets. We call that, you know, large TAMs. We want entrepreneurs and management teams who think really big. Well, you want that big vision, but then you have to break it down into achievable bite-sized um, goals. And one of my 25 Jeffisms to business is 
nail it, then scale it. And another one is focus, focus, and focus. And so sometimes these entrepreneurs want to do everything. I want to open up in 50 markets. I want to go to 20 different countries. I want to not just focus on um, leasing office space, but I want to have an education business and I want to have a software business and I want to have you know community events and I want to have we living. Those may be the right vision, but it's how do you sequence those? How do you make sure your unit economics are positive? And then once you've nailed that, you scale it. How do you make sure you're focused? How do you make sure that you're holding, uh, you have good corporate governance and you're holding your management teams accountable for doing what they say and say what they're doing? And so those are some of the lessons that we need to keep telling ourselves is that you want to find the balance of very big vision with really exceptional execution. Going back to the just sheer amounts of money that the Vision Fund can pour into a company. You were CEO of Shutterfly for a very long time and took that company from very small to very big. You had quite a success. If a SoftBank Vision Fund had come in and offered you 10 times the amount of venture capital that you were getting at the time, would you have known what to do with it? Would it have been a, a net positive or a net negative? Would you have maybe not scaled it, nailed it, then scaled it? Yeah, so I would have took the money in a heartbeat. And the reason <laughs> is um, within six months of me joining Shutterfly, and I was the fourth CEO in three years, and the infamous, very bright Jim Clark was my chairman and owned 52% of the company. And obviously Jim uh, was the founder of Silicon Graphics and Netscape. And Jim um, is one of your quintessential, amazing visionary entrepreneurs, right? Um, and they brought me in because the company was losing money um, and the space was nascent, right? Digital photos, ability to share and print from your digital camera. And we had many, many competitors and we were a very small company. And within three months of Shutterfly launching in December of 1999, uh, backed by Jim Clark, Jim Barksdale um, backed a competitor called Ophoto and then... Um, uh, Matrix Ventures uh, backed Snapfish, which was created by six of my colleagues and classmates from Harvard Business School. And then over the course of my 12 years at Shutterfly, over 1,100 venture-backed photo companies came into the market. And then I had to compete with companies you probably never heard of. Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, <laughs> Costco, Apple, Yahoo, Facebook, Instagram, Fuji, Sony, American Greetings, Hallmark, um, Xerox and um, uh, uh, Hewlett Packard. And so yet out of that incredible um, set of competition, David beat Goliath. And we ended up uh, when I left with 78% of the market. I today, I today, I believe Shutterfly has 88% of the market. And so within six months I had, I joined, I had 8 million in the bank and we were losing 20. So that's a recipe for disaster. And um, I was so fortunate that the amazing partners at Sutter Hill Ventures, which is probably the quietest venture firm um, in all of Silicon Valley that no one's ever heard of, but um, they have, I think, number one or number two best returns out of any venture firm. And they incubated companies like Snowflake and Pure Storage in their office, and they were the seed investors in companies like NVIDIA. Um, they traditionally don't do a lot of consumer but I happened to know the partners and they happened to believe in me. And so they wrote a $20 million check when I joined. And within six months, I was able to get the company from losing money to making money on the first transaction to being EBITDA positive 
And then within a year being free cash flow positive, and then I took the company public um, in 2006. So if you came to me, if Masayoshi-san came to me and said, don't take $20 million from Sutter Hill Ventures, take $200 million from SoftBank, I would have took it in a heartbeat because I had clarity of vision of what to do to nail it, then scale it. And ultimately over the course of 12 years, I bought 17 of my competitors and did a effective roll-up strategy. I bought Kodak's business out of bankruptcy for 23 million. I bought Yahoo Photos for $1. I bought Sony Photos for $100,000, et cetera. I would have just hastened that um, uh, uh, consolidation in the industry and we would have been able to capture much more of the economic rents and build a much bigger company. And of course, now the challenge you have as an investor is you have to find you again, right? I mean, there are plenty of people who would take the $200 million instead of the $20 million, but you have to trust that they have that same vision and won't, if they were effective at $20 million with the lean startup, so to speak, that they won't blow the $200 million. No, you're absolutely right. It's kind of like uh, I have three teenage boys now, but when they turn three to four, they learn the word no. <laughs> and they said no a lot more than they said yes. And so you have to learn not do you want to put on your shoes. You say, do you want the blue shoes or the red shoes? So that way you get in yes. Well, in the venture business, we spend most of the day saying no, right? So I've done personally 17 investments over the course of the last three and a half years, but I've looked at a little over 600 companies to get to 17 investments. So our job is largely to say no. Now, I spectacularly missed a few things I should have said yes to, like Zoom and um, Impossible and uh, Snowflake, um, and uh, totally okay admitting that. Um, some of those I got priced out. Some of those I just didn't see the, the uh, I didn't see COVID and Zoom taking off, um, and, and they built a remarkable business. Um, and so you have to go through multiple layers of filters, as you said, to find not just the great idea with a very large addressable market, but with a management team who either has the capability or the demonstrable experience that you believe they'll be able to execute on that vision. So even Vision Fund can get priced out, huh? Even Vision Fund can say, oh, too rich for our blood. All the time, all the time. We, we, we don't do deals because we can't get our arms around the current valuation around it. And um, like, like every venture capitalist, there uh, sometimes the best deal you do is the deal you didn't do because that company just never grew into that valuation. And then sometimes you miss it because great companies will never have looked cheap when you go back in retrospective. And, and my good friend Byron Dieter at Bessemer, they actually publish a list of the companies they passed on and what lessons they missed. And um, we talk about that on my team all the time. We do postmortems on the ones we did and the ones we didn't do and what what did we miss? And so that we can learn. I think Bessema does the industry and entrepreneurs a good service by discussing that more publicly. And so, yeah, we, we turn away many, many companies because of valuation. Jeff Hausenbold, managing partner at SoftBank Investment Advisors, home to the SoftBank Vision Fund. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes 
at at PressHereTV.com.